I've been doing a fair number of interviews lately about Canada's LNG capacity, export capacity, and the potential for exporting to Asia. It's a very controversial topic in Canada and one that sucks up a lot of the oxygen in the Canadian energy conversation. Well, I'm going to be talking to Cynthia Leach, who's the Assistant Chief Economist at RBC and one of the co-authors of Canada's Conundrum, Three Ways to Address the World's Gas and Climate Crises. So welcome to the interview, Cynthia. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, I I mentioned this to you uh, off camera and I'll just throw it out there because my I think most of my viewers will know this already. I'm I'm an LNG skeptic, but always open to be convinced by a good evidence-based argument. So let's talk about that argument. What's the what are some of the assumptions behind recommendations to build out liquid nat- uh, liquefied natural gas exports, especially on, on the West Coast? What are some of the assumptions? I'll I'll let you uh take a crack at it. Absolutely. First, I should say our report was more about raising awareness of uh, the choices before Canada. So I wouldn't say that we're proposing one path forward, but illuminating in our report, hopefully, that there are these are the options for Canada, that they each have very real trade-offs that Canada needs to consider and manage, but that the window for making those decisions and deciding whether or not to play a bigger role in global LNG markets is closing soon. So it's something we're going to have to do. But I can certainly talk about what some of Canada's um, you know, advantages are in terms of LNG exports from the West Coast. First of all, I think maybe a, um, a setting you know, for people who might not be as up to speed in terms of advantages of LNG, whether it's Canada or otherwise, I think it's twofold. First of all, in the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, concerns around energy security and the diversity of stable energy supri- uh, supplies has put LNG in the spotlight. And number two, in terms of decarbonization and um, reducing emissions from our economies, natural gas is a cleaner burning fuel compared to coal. So this is a big argument for using it in Asia because with a growing population and um, you know, in many countries less um, more price sensitive, coal is often the default fuel. And so natural gas provides uh, an emission savings, even when you consider the life cycle even when you consider, for example, the life cycle emissions of producing it in Canada, uh, liquefying it in Canada, and then shipping it to Asia. So those are two, two kind of global advantages of LNG. So what is Canada's advantage from the West Coast? I think it's four things. One is we are a different supplier. We have limited, um, you know, one LNG kind of terminal coming online mid-decade. The U.S. has been going, you know, quite assertively in building new terminals. And as countries look at diverse supplies, they're not just looking at, you know, switching from Russia to the U.S. It's about diversity. And Canada can offer that as a, as a stable country um, with the second point, very plentiful upstream natural gas supplies. And so the Montney Shale Basin, for example, in B.C. and Alberta is a very large um, shale gas play. And it is very cheap to extract and and on par with, you know, for example, some of the basins that you see in the United States. And that's important because natural gas as a role as a transition fuel is going to depend on it being affordable. Um, Another thing is um, we have uh, better green credentials here in terms of producing that natural gas. So Canada has world leading methane regulations. They're going to be getting stricter. The Montney Basin itself has lower formation um, carbon dioxide within it, which improves its profile. And 
to the fourth point, but also as an emissions point, we have lower shipping times to Asia compared to, for example, even the south of the Gulf Coast, which has to go through the Panama Canal. That saves both cost and emissions. And so that's really, you know, the case for Canadian LNG. That was the case a decade ago, in many cases, when we were looking at um, supplying global markets with a lot of um, uh, projects on the West Coast. But some of those have become more important uh, in given developments over the last couple of years. And not to say they're not challenges, but those are those are the core um, arguments in favor. Uh, and I'm really glad that you clarified that the report isn't uh, is setting out the choices as opposed to advocating for for one of those choices. So thank you very much for that. I I was uh, uh, maybe reading my own biases, uh, you know, reading with my own biases uh, on full display. Uh, you know, when I was doing that, but I want to talk about some of the data. So uh, I went and I found, and you can find this in the IEA reports, you can find it in BP's uh, energy forecast, uh, annual energy forecast, but I, I picked one uh, from S&P Global Commodity Insights, big, a big forecaster, big uh, uh, analyst. And I'm, I'm looking at the, the installed capacity for power generation in China out to 2050. And uh, huge growth from like, you know, 2000 megawatts, of capacity out to about 7,000. And what do we see? Uh, wind and solar taking almost all of that growth. And S&P is, is saying the same thing that the IEA and others are, which is that LNG imports will, or LNG consumption in China's power sector will peak in 2030 and gently decline to pretty much nothing by 2050. And <laughs> You know, and I hear this all the time, China, 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 and China is going in a different direction. It doesn't seem like our ambitions around LNG are lined up with our, our the biggest customer that we would try to go after. Uh, this is a great, a great discussion, a great point. So I think there's a couple of things. First of all, it's not just China. Um, there's a lot of Asian countries there, Japan, Korea, but also of the South Pacific that would, you know, are a looking at, um, and maybe not China, but some other countries are looking at strong population growth, moving up the income distribution, which means more energy intensity. And, um, you know, the, the, you know, the need also to balance uh, renewables in the system. So <clears throat> just like in North America, we, you know, we could build a lot of renewables, but you're dealing with intermittency of you know, solar and wind resources. And so you need to balance that with nuclear or hydro. And gas has actually been, you know, in Canada, even like um, the, the, peak, the peak load management. And um, it, you know, it's, there's nothing, it's not clear how that would be replaced exactly in you know, some of these other countries in Asia, but also, as I said before, more price sensitive. And so if you're looking at expensive battery storage, that might be more of an abatement or decarbonization pathway for Canada but less clear about Asia. To be clear, solar and wind are more compelling in Asia than they used to be. The costs that have come down have in some jurisdictions put it more on par with gas, especially given the run up over the last year and a half in gas prices. But I think the core point is, you know, you can look at one forecast or another and they're all good assessments of what, you know, good guesses of what might happen in the future. And it is true that in net zero consistent scenario, we need to see less natural gas globally. But if we don't have those stable secure energy supplies in the interim, it will derail the um, transition 
that, you know, getting to net zero by 2050. And so the thing is, should Canada have some role in, um, you know, providing that global energy security while the world transitions away from fossil fuels? Well, that brings us to LNG supply, because one of the things that's coming online in, in the mid, uh, you know, just a couple of years, mid-decade, is a, literally a tsunami of supply from countries like Qatar and USA and Australia and others. And once again, Canada is uh, jockeying to be, how can we be 12th in the world in a 20th century energy source? Not how can we be leading the world in geothermal or wind or the, com you know, the combination of combining wind and, and solar with hydro like we could do in Western Canada. We're not having those discussions. We're, discuss we're having discussions from the 1980s, the 1990s. How do we jump on board that energy source? And, and why wouldn't we uh, invest in 30 to 50 year infrastructure just at the time when the world is going through, uh, you know, this huge energy transition and moving over to electricity? And, and it just seems like, I'm sorry, it's not a compelling argument. And it's, you know, we're, we would be a marginal producer at best from everything I can see. And by the way, I've interviewed economists who say that, you know, if you're building a, a plant in the West Coast of, El of Canada, your capital costs are two times that of the U.S. Gulf Coast. You've got lower operating costs because you're further north and it's colder and, and that improves your liquefaction efficiency, those kinds of things. And you're closer to Asia. But, you know, twice your capital costs. And we just found out that the coastal gas link pipeline that's going to supply LNG Canada is now $30 billion instead of $10 billion. Yeah, so I mean, a couple... Okay, so anyway, sorry, sorry, to, wrap sorry. Up that, to wrap up my little rant, uh, you know, <laughs> the the variables that argue against uh, building out L Canadian LNG capacity seem to me to be far more basically overwhelming those in favor of, and I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, I mean, a couple points there and then what I make of the whole thing and how I kind of square it for myself. Uh, you know, you're absolutely right about capital costs. For greenfield development, that's where our challenge is. We've got challenging terrain. We have difficulty getting projects approved. In the new suite of projects, that, you know, globally, it's, it's, there are a ton, but some of those face challenges and traditionally lower cost suppliers like Australia, or I mean, Australia's not quite a large cost supplier anymore, but US others are starting to face some of that limits of low cost development. And so, on a relative competitiveness, we might be looking a little bit better, but it is no question that Canada is more of a premium product. And there is a question whether global consumers will pay for that premium product. The second thing is, you know, people are moving quickly. So that goes kind of to our clarion call of the papers, Canada needs to decide and, and you, know, you know, get moving one way or the other. But in terms of how I square the challenges, goes because, sorry, the other challenge I wanted to mention is if we build an economy just reliant on fossil fuels, that exposes us to huge transition risks. You know, even if natural gas might have better, by a lot of assessments, prospects than you know, oil sands, for example, could be a bit of a hedge in that space, and no doubt a huge source of economic value. It's still a risk to the Canadian economy. But how I think about it is, you know, it's not for me as an economist looking at all these numbers to make the business case for a natural gas project here or there. The question for me is, are there kind of no regrets type of actions or things missing in the policy framework or the industry playbook that means Canada can't compete at all? Because we don't necessarily need to be number one and build, you know, 15 projects that we we're looking at a decade ago. 
couple projects can generate tremendous value and count as Canada contributing to its allies' global energy security. Um, you know, so to me, there are a couple things missing in the framework that um, prevent us from taking advantage of that. And I, I mean, I can go through a few of them. One is Article 6. There's a global mechanism to trade carbon credits. The idea that if natural gas shipped to Asia from Canada can reduce global emissions, but raise Canada's emissions, how does Canada get a credit for that? Canada can work on finding, form, you know, forging those bilateral agreements that would allow us to, to obtain credit for that. I'm going to have to jump in here because yeah. I'm, I'm one of the few energy journalists in Canada that has actually followed up on that story. And I've, yeah. I've, I've interviewed uh, carbon consultants, uh, international carbon consultants, who said that's not the way Article 6 was intended to work. And secondly, I've interviewed the offices of both uh, ministers, Jonathan Wilkinson, Natural Resources, and uh, Stephen Guilbeault, who is Minister of Economy. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants, none of the, the Canadian government wants no part of uh, car, trying to get uh, to negotiate agreements under Article 6 of the Paris Agreement and for carbon credits for avoided emissions uh, in, in Asia or, or any place else. The headwinds are just against it. And this argument that this can be done, because the Premier of Alberta makes it all the time, and you see others in the industry make it all the time, A, it, it, it would be so hard to do under Article 6, under the accounting mechanism, that nobody would even bother to do it. And secondly, the, the federal government wants no part of it. So I think we need to put a pin in that cushion and and get, and get stop making that argument is my point. Well, I'm not sure it's been run to ground totally. And we definitely have new contacts with the Japanese and German like consumers looking for stable supplies. The point is it's not something that businesses can do. It's something that the government needs to look at. And so if, that, if that's the view, then I think that needs to be better articulated because to me, it still looks like a missing piece. That means that Canada can't really get to the next level of the LNG conversation and make that decision because some of these simple things aren't in place. Not simple, but important things are not in place. Yes, fair enough. Okay, and maybe the government, but you can see from the, the political uh, take on this from the ministers is if we come out and say it explicitly, like I, they just did, to, like they did to me, uh, then what happens is they, it's a firestorm of, you know, political backlash in places like Alberta, and, you know, they're just trying to avoid that kind of thing. Okay, that was a number one, and I think you had another reason or two, so I'll let you talk about those. Yeah, absolutely. A couple other things. Project approvals have been a challenge, and this is not just for LNG and fossil fuel infrastructure, it's for other things. The government's committed a lot of money in the last couple budgetary documents um, to improving project approvals, the federal government, and working with the provinces, and they're supposed to have a plan out by the end of the year. We need to see what that looks like, and industry needs to, you know, and Indigenous communities need to be involved in that. That's something that we, Canada across the board needs to be better at, and again, is a piece of the policy framework that we need to improve upon that's going to have an influence on LNG and other sectors. There's also things that industry can do in terms of cost management, in terms of the government providing more forward-looking um, um, targets on decarbonization. We know from the emissions reduction plan what their, um, the federal government is looking for in emissions cuts from oil and gas by 2030. So we don't have the oil and gas emissions cap. We don't know when that's coming, as last time I checked. And that, that needs to be clear because that helps guide those LNG investments and determine on what timeline and if they're profitable. And electrification. Um, we can decarbonize a lot of uh, natural gas production upstream and at the liquefaction level. 
it requires a lot of electricity. And for a jurisdiction, for example, like BC, that involves trade-offs potentially with other, you know, green production. And so BC Hydro, which is being called upon, you know, as other in other jurisdictions to lead this, needs to provide a clear electrification strategy. Without those pieces, it's too hard for businesses to make the decisions. And so I think that's where Canada, at least in a no-regrets basis, can focus on those areas. And beyond that, has to make a more decisive decision on whether it will play in global LNG markets. Okay, let's, let's address some of the issues you raised. Uh, there, to my understanding, if I'm running my number correctly, is there are 18 LNG projects that are already been approved and they've got the environmental certificate and they're waiting for a, an FID, a final investment decision. 18 of them. So my, my take on this is that money talks. And in this case, the money, the, the smart money is saying, Goodbye, Canada, because LNG, now granted, LNG Canada, Shell and its partners invested $40 billion to build up that pro, phase one of that project. And I can't tell you how many months I've been reading uh, oil and gas analysts saying, ooh, it looks like Shell's getting ready to do the FID on phase two. It'll be next week. It'll be in the next month. And here we are in June of 2023, and we still don't have an investment. So, you know, I, I think, as I said, money talks and the message the conversation is having with us is not, is not very positive. Now, uh, some of these other issues that you've, you've raised is, you know, look at what's happening down in the U.S. around linear infrastructure. They can't build anything either. There was a, 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 there was a study that came out of the uh, Canadian Energy Research Institute uh, in, in 2019, I think it was, and... I, I interviewed the economist who did it and they, you know, the, the length of time to approve energy infrastructure projects in Canada and the US is very similar. The thing that makes Canada take a little bit longer is we have to do Aboriginal consultations, Indigenous consultations, which in the constitution, it's not in the American constitution. They don't have to do that. And so they're a little faster than us, but building linear infrastructure everywhere is really difficult, not just mm -hmm. in Canada. So I'm not sure that there are a lot of efficiencies or time savings to be squeezed out of that process, uh, frankly. And I don't know, I, we could have this, uh, I, I don't know where to go from here, uh, Cynthia, because uh, the, the issues that we, we've discussed today uh, still don't present a good evidence-based argument for for Canada building out LNG export capacity. I know you 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 know you, you didn't come on here to argue one side or the other, but just to alert us to the choices that we have to make. And, and I would say that we've already made the choice. The fact that we've done nothing, we haven't got any more FIDs, is and probably what how long do you think the window is still open? That somebody has to make a choice here. Well, we've got two years, five years, what have we got? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't make these decisions myself, so I'm not sure, but I think Canada needs to, the point is, my argument is, you know, the, the, it won't be compelling one way or the other, unless we can get some of these other things clarified. We need more certainty so private capital can decide whether or not to invest. And it's going to take a little while to build some of those things. So we need to be making a decision now on what we can do on Article 6, on project approvals, on Indigenous uh, equity, for example, and participation, um, so that... Uh, there's time. No one, no one exactly knows the life, the lifespan of natural gas in Europe, for example. It's, you know, by the 2030s, it probably looks like it's a lot less, but there are arguments that it may stick around for a while. And the point is a transition is difficult. So the, the, the shelf life might be a bit longer than we think, but the point is, 
um, it's, it's not going to be around forever. And we've got to make a decision on, on this next step. There was, a, there was an, uh, an option in there that I didn't see in your paper. and Maybe I, I missed it, but I'm going to put it out here and you can tell me what you, what you think of it. And that is backfilling the American system. I mean, the Americans are already, the U.S. Uh, Energy Information Administration is talking about potential shortages in the U.S. and high prices as the, the Americans continue to build out their LNG export capacity. And it's been the case before that the Canadian producers, which have an extensive export and a pipeline network into the U.S. market, have backfilled when there's been uh, price pressure in the U.S. And that that is a low cost. I know, you know, I know you don't get the benefits from the capital. Uh, we all love the fact that Shell, you know, LNG Canada is spending $40 billion of capital in the in British Columbia. That's wonderful. And we all enjoy that. But if this is, if we're looking for an energy transition strategy while taking advantage of our natural gas resources, then it seems to me backfilling on the American uh, uh, market would be a logical one. Would you agree or disagree? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the options in our paper. It's U.S. energy supplier, and it is happening. There are supply agreements right now with Canadian upstream producers. And it remember, part of the LNG boom in the U.S. is, you know, contingent on financing. And a lot of that project financing depends on having offtake agreements, both for the gas and then for the LNG. And, um, you know, U.S. has pipeline constraints and production issues in some areas. And it's, you know, it, it's important. It's a role Canada can play, but to basically what you're saying is, is the core point. It's a low risk, low reward strategy. And it's something that Canada, you know, should take advantage of it, could take advantage of, but not just back into that is the only, um, you know, role that we can play in LNG here. It's not the only one. And so we should make an active decision if, if uh, we want something else. Okay, you know what, that's that's a fair argument, actually, that it should be an active decision, that we shouldn't just do what, you know, we shouldn't muddle through and have other people make our decisions for us. You know, that I can get on board with. Now, I would say we should actively not pursue LNG or not in any, in any uh, significant way, but I could see where there, you know, that your paper, not your paper, your paper laid out the arguments for a more active pro-LNG uh, scenario, and that's, and that's fair enough. So, Wrap it up for us, uh, Cynthia. Where are we where are we going with this? Are, are are the conversations taking place to resolve the issues that you're talking about and and at least come to a decision? Um, you know, I, I'm not um, as close to it. I, I would certainly hope so. LNG has certainly gotten a lot of attention the last little bit, and not and you know not just within Canada, it's globally. Um, international organizations are acknowledging its role, so. It's a bit of a, a boom, a potential boom right now that, you know, it's important to leverage to inform people about the choices and the trade-offs. I think there's, you know, definitely a receptivity to that energy security argument, the global emissions reductions. And so I think some important um, um, groups are taking another look at it. And uh, our point is we just need to move with alacrity in doing so. Well, look, Cynthia, thank you very much for this. You've come on and you've, you've made, you know, uh, compelling arguments uh, for the various positions and laid out the options that, that Canada has and why we need to move quickly. And I think all of that is good. And I think I think what, what we can take away from this conversation is, is that we need to have a very pointed conversation uh, amongst the stakeholders in this in this discussion. Uh, and we haven't really done that. We kind of skirt it and, you know, the proponents go off and talk amongst themselves. I just came back from an, a gas and LNG conference in Vancouver <laughs> where I was speaking. And, you know, 
the, the, the proponents go off and talk to each other and the opponents go off and talk to each other. And maybe we need to get all of them together in a room and just hash this out and, and make some final decisions. But thank you very much for this. Thanks for having me. It's fun. 